You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Theralogics. Thousands of women swear by Abositol, and for good reason. With an evidence-based blend of inositols, Abositol by Theralogic is designed to promote healthy hormone levels and support regular menstrual cycles, ovarian health, and fertility. Abositol is gluten-free, vegan, and the only independently tested and certified inositol supplement available. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas here with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored with my scintillating, stunning, vivacious partners, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center <laughs> and Dr. Abby Eplin from Nashville Fertility Center. Whoop, whoop, I'm over here. <laughs> and we are joined again today by John Whitney, who's the Director of Storage at Ovation Fertility. And we are so happy to have you back. And John, we were just talking about like pathways of how we got to where we are. And you mentioned that you went to a performing arts school, which is not usually what you hear from someone who is an embryologist, (laughs) who is a horse enthusiast. You're a Renaissance man. So did you have to major within the performing arts? Because all the performing arts people, like, were you an actor? Were you a musician? Like, tell us, we need the details. What was it? Yeah, I went to the Orange County High School for the Arts, or OSHA. Uh, I was their second graduating class of their move. So they moved to a a high rise in downtown Santa Ana, uh, Orange County, California. Seven stories tall. Only seniors were allowed to take the elevator. So that was a lot (laughs) of stairs. Whoa, that's amazing. You stayed in shape. Oh, it was a lot of stairs. There were, I believe there's eight different conservatories as they called it. And when I went, it was very intense. They really toned it down a little bit, but you basically went to school from what, 7.30 to three, you had a half an hour break. And then you went to conservatory from 3.30 to 5.30 every single day. And then you did performances in the evening. And I was in production and design. So I did, uh, I majored in lighting and costume design. Which is so similar to what you do right now. I know. Right on on key with what you do. I know. (laughs) Um, So I did that. And then we did, I think production design had over a hundred performances a year that we had to do. One of the big things that I did was uh, I was the assistant stage manager for the only off-Broadway production of Chicago. So oh, like, wow. We, like, like not like Fancy. we, it was crazy. So we oh. had the uh, Broadway dance captain and then the tour dance captain as our directors. And it was 100% the show that you see Chicago, which is way too adult for a high school. And um, (laughs) it was very adult and they denied us. So the owners of Chicago wrote us and said, you are not allowed to perform this, this production period, full stop. And we petitioned them back and they gave us very strict parameters, but we had to order it as a equity based touring house. So we got the Broadway script with 
all of the annotations, original annotations in there wow. with every lighting cue, every cue of a set change, everything in it. We got the exact set given to us for it. We got all their caught, like we got everything given to you as an equity based production. Wow. It's and, even better um, than if they'd given you the initial permission, basically. So I couldn't believe what they, what they gave us for it. And it was great. And so a couple of my friends from there have gone on to some pretty great things. My good friend was uh, in high school, not so great now, just a Queens, but she uh, ended up becoming a Tony winner. It's just, it's a huge school, very well known in that industry. So yeah. And then you went into animal sciences after that. I did. I did. I would say that I'm very (laughs) tactile. So everything is done with my hands. So I like to create with my hands and build with my hands. And biotech and embryology is a very tactile skill. So it was just a change from more art to science, but you can argue that science and art are very similar. It kept the tactile nature that I really liked of doing with my hands. So I want to know... The many sides of John Whitney. I know. I want to know... So in our embryology lab, there is a clear rotation of each day, a different embryologist gets to pick what's on the radio, like whatever music they're listening to (sighs) that day. So when you were in the embryology lab, did you always go for musicals, Broadway, that kind of stuff? No, we always listened to like Jack FM, which I think is pretty national out there, right? So it's kind of like 80s, 90s rock almost Mm -hmm. like alternative. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like the jam that we would do. And then pop and then sometimes some musicals if the people were in it. My only thing about music in the lab is that if I was alone, it would be incredibly loud. (laughs) That does not like surprise me in the absolute least. (laughs) So I'll just have to mention, John, that that Sean in our Ovation Lab in Nashville, every Sunday he listens to show tunes on Sunday. So you'll have to ask me about that. He does. Oh my God, I will. We try to make our pilgrimage to New York every once in a while to go see some shows. We just went um, and saw a couple and then I try to keep myself abreast with with what happens and follow some of my old high school friends that are now, you know, doing their thing. It's an interesting world, the whole thing. It is a very different. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So Susan, what's our question of the day? Okay. So our question is, I had my first FET in July and prior to transfer had fluid in my lining on ultrasound. They reviewed previous scans and saw it present in those as well. The day of transfer, the doctor removed the fluid via catheter before placing the embryo. We had a negative result on transfer with genetically normal embryo. The following months, we did a hysteroscopy and removed two small polyps and had an ERA, which showed a receptive lining. They did not see fluid in the ERA cycle. While waiting for ERA results, I did a medication cycle of letrozole and folostim and developed a cyst, so had to wait a cycle for it to resolve. Now at my lining check, prepping for the next transfer, fluid is back. Fluid enters near my C-section incision. They say some people have fluid in their lining, but also can be problematic for embryos attaching. I have one child we were able to conceive naturally first try. How do you determine if the fluid is problematic and what can you do to resolve it? Starting the progesterone did not resolve it last cycle. Ooh, the dreaded fluid in the endometrium. That's a tough one. I don't think anybody really has a great answer for that. You know, we kind of looked at for a while at trying to fix C-section scars because sometimes we feel like fluid could pull in the C-section scar and reflux back into the uterus. I don't think anybody really does that anymore. We do think about taking tubes out if they're bad, but it looks sounds like you had a tubal assessment and the tubes were okay. Is that, did I understand that correctly? 
I don't think they mentioned HSG. So I would do a tubal assessment. I know you had a hysteroscopy, but I would definitely make sure your tubes are okay because if you have a blocked fallopian tube, then that could be the origin of where the fluid is coming from. I think in our center, we've kind of done what your doctor did. We've actually aspirated fluid. Sometimes we try and aspirate it a little bit further away from the transfer if we can, but sometimes if it's there the day before, it's kind of hard to know what to do. Either you cancel the transfer potentially or aspirate the fluid and make sure it doesn't reoccur. But I don't I don't know that anybody has a great solution for that. What about you, Carrie? What would you do? Uh, sometimes really high estrogen levels can promote yeah. fluid. And so sometimes those natural cycles are really helpful. And sometimes it can be a natural cycle without any medication whatsoever, which uh, as fertility docs sometimes makes us a little twitchy because, <laughs> because we, <laughs> we are control, control freaks at heart. You know, I would probably take a look at that. But, uh, you know, you have had cycles that have been negative uh, for fluid. And so it may just be a matter of, holding out until you get the right one until you get a good cycle and just know okay this is not personal this is not something i'm doing this is not something the clinic's doing this is just we are going to take advantage of the biology when we hit it and go from there yeah and sometimes i wonder too how much is really mucus versus fluid and it's kind of hard to really figure that out you know you kind of feel like if it's mucus it's probably not a problem but if it's fluid it probably is and like carrie said with high estrogen levels sometimes you can have more fluid and potentially more mucus too Yeah, I'd be curious to see what your estrogen levels were during your ERA cycle as compared to your other cycles to see Mm -hmm. if there was a difference there, maybe a different formulation of estrogen. So maybe instead of oral, either vaginal or transdermal to see if there's any difference in how your body, specifically your uterus, processes it. Because I would say that estrogen is usually the biggest culprit in figuring out if you can tweak it in any way. Yeah. All right. So John, today we were going to talk to you about your current subspecialization within the fertility world, which is you're the director of storage. And so that is a broad term for some very specific things. So when we say director of storage, storing what? Yeah, we call them reproductive specimens. So that's going to be eggs, oocyte, sperm, or tissue. Uh, very rarely do we store tissue, but it is something that, that we do store. And there's no core blood, so we don't do any of the core blood uh, storing or anything else that's out there. It's just reproductive specimens that, that we store. And storage basically goes in a, a couple different directions. One would be an inventory, uh, and then inventory uh, guides us to like what I call patient engagement, which is basically letting us tell you what you have in storage, what your options are for storage, what future options could be for you, all of that. And the other end is the most critical, which is uh, safety. Do we have alarm systems? Do we have monitoring? What do we have for that? So I think what most people don't understand when they first start treatment is that ownership and proper identification of your specimens are and what you want and everything along those lines is kind of done in a whirlwind of consenting. And I want to, you know, speak to making sure that everybody just really knows that those documents and what they do when they present is incredibly, incredibly important for future uses of their specimens. Many, many patients today end up resulting with excess embryos that they're going to go ahead and store for some years moving forward. We want to make sure that in the very beginning that they are well educated on what they're doing when they identify that first. So for people who are listening who have not, they're thinking about IVF or something like that, and they have not seen one of these consent forms, okay? These consent forms are not for the faint of heart. (laughs) How would you describe these consent forms, John? So specifically for storage, 
we look at two different avenues. One is treatment. So that's going to fall to you guys and to basically what are the risks associated with treatment? What are the risks associated with storing? What are all of the options for that? The other is what I'm doing, which is I'm providing you a service. I am going to um, safely store your reproductive material in a temperature environment that can sustain them for many, many, many years. I'll take a side caveat. Many people ask me, how long? How long can they stay? Yeah, that's and always the question. Is there any season version? Yeah. Yeah. What is the answer, John? <laughs> this, is, this is what I say. Undoubtedly, there's a time limit. Okay, undoubtedly. I'm, I'm certain that there has to be some time limit. Today, we have found that we consistently are thawing embryos between 25 to up to 30 years now, and we are not seeing any degradation to the material. So amazing. rest That's assured <laughs> that for your reproductive life, which is what you're freezing them for, which is for your reproductive purposes, these embryos are going to sustain for as long as you need for your reproductive health and for what you need to do. So be that 5, mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years in the future, you're going to be okay. Is that through vitrification, which is the newer technique, or slow freeze, or does it does it matter? It, as long as survival happens, I don't think it matters. It's okay. just that survival with vitrification is significantly improved than survival with older technologies, which would be the slow freezing. But if your embryo thaws and is survived, I would say that your chances of pregnancy and everything is great. I don't think that a slow freezing embryo has a shorter lifespan of storage than something that is is vitrified. And these ones that we are thawing at 25 to 30 years are undoubtedly still frozen. To be clear, most embryos are thawed through this technique vitrification, which is just Correct. a really quick way, really fast way to instantaneously freeze your embryo so it doesn't damage the organelles. Is that fair? If you want to get super geeky, it's just all about water and the way that we allow ice crystals to be inside of the embryo. And ice crystals are what can damage them. So slow freezing allows some ice crystals to go slowly in, where vitrification does it really fast and doesn't allow them to go in. So that's why we've seen an increase in it. So yes, we've moved towards vitrification for everything for it. But like sperm is all slow frozen because we don't have the water that we have to worry about. We don't have the ice crystal formation. Sperm is significantly smaller than... um, an embryo is. Therefore, we don't have to worry about it. So slow freezing or vapor freezing is done for all of our sperm. Interesting. I've never thought about that with sperm being slow frozen. Interesting. John, what you're talking about is what all the things that you handle are the tissues, egg, sperm, embryos, or other tissue that are being held while someone is not in active treatment. So when they are in active treatment, those tissues, whatever they may be, are typically at the clinic, and we're just waiting for that sweet spot in time to thaw them and move on. But that's only a very small fraction of time. The vast majority of the rest of the time, you are in between babies or you're trying to decide, am I done having babies? And so you guys have control because most clinics just don't have the kind of space over the long run to hold every single tissue that they have helped to extract. And so that's why these storage facilities exist is because it's a centralized area to really manage everything. Yeah, I think storage is going to become a hot topic. It's already been one and it's going to keep growing as one. Unfortunately, you go into these laboratories, they were never built with what we're currently doing today, which is a lot of freeze-all cycles and really great results and high yield, lots of embryos. These clinics and these laboratories cannot sustain the patient load indefinitely. Five years from now, these clinics are going to run out of space and you're running into different 
hurdles when you run out of space? Do you increase pricing to de-incentivize patients? Do you force patients to move offsite? Do you do different type of things? And so specifically with us and with within the Ovation Network, we've come up with a solution that has it kind of built in-house. But yeah, this is something that all patients need to be well aware of. And starting that treatment and then calling up and saying, hi, I'm a patient, you really need to be aware that what you're filling out and how you're identifying yourself is going to follow those materials everywhere they go. So if you want to transport them from one clinic to another one, you want to go ahead and utilize an offsite storage facility. Who you are and how you present is uh, really going to require you to maybe get notarized documents or get forms filled out in order to cover it. What, what me, are you saying, John? Yeah, what I'm saying is, is that a haphazard approach to storage is what was done maybe 15 years ago, but we are really being stricter today. So let's talk about sperm. You and your husband come in for treatment for freezing your sperm. You are seen under a co-shared treatment, right? You guys are all treating together. That means that the sperm to us, if you've elected to sign consent and identify a partner, you both own the sperm. You are both owners of the sperm. Really? Yep. So if you needed to transport someplace else, you both have to sign documents to transport someplace else. You are done utilizing the sperm. You both need to sign for it. I know it's an interesting concept. Most people don't don't go that way. So we tend to then press the idea. Well, if it was two women that had it, would you treat two women differently than you would if it was a man and a woman? If it was two men that was using it, would you treat them differently? If it was donor sperm, would you treat donor sperm differently? Do you identify ownership differently because of the relationships that they have? And if you do, you shouldn't. You should treat everybody the same. If we started out this conversation, we were talking about embryos, you would not have the same blank looks on all three of our faces that you currently have on our faces this moment. Now, when you're sitting there and talking about eggs or sperm, I would think that if my husband gave sperm or I decided to freeze my eggs, those are his sperm, those are my eggs. And yes, if we got divorced as those items are technically property, they would have to be like discussed and allocated. But I would think when it came down to it, saying my you're eggs not, my you're eggs, not, he doesn't get to yeah, like they're not community I can't imagine property a in the divorce. Saying yes, yeah. your my eggs could go to him unless like I died or something like that. So let's go down that caveat. So the, <laughs> there's been a couple of court cases specific as well as the FDA requirements for chart noting. So let me ask you guys a question. If you present with a patient that is going to utilize surrogacy as one of their avenues for treatment, are you required to test their embryos as donor material? Yes. The an- but the answer is also no if the embryos were frozen without the intention of being for surrogacy. Right, you but then they have back, to be wavered. But they have to be wavered. wavered and you still have to do the testing. It's just not in the timeline. Correct, but they're not, they're not the same because of the way that they are. And if it is donor material where you don't know where the donor is and or the donor is unwilling to go ahead and get it, you can still waver around it because the FDA has made it crystal clear to us in storage as well as in treatment. They never want to prevent an embryo to be transferred. 
but they need to know what the original intention was out of that treatment. So if your intentions come in and you elect and you identify treatment and ownership at the beginning, that's going to carry you all the way through. And you guys do that very easily now for surrogacy cases. It's done all the time where people transition from not surrogacy to surrogacy cases. We have waivers. We have all of that. Again, I get it for surrogacy. I'm not getting it for eggs and sperm. (laughs) So in that same vein, if you present as a, a female patient and you're utilizing it and your insurance benefit is what is going to be used and we free sperm and we apply your insurance benefit as the female to the male in order to cover it, now, not only are we saying that you're doing it, but we're applying her insurance benefit to the males. She is paying for that treatment. This is co-treated stuff. Let me give you another example. If a husband and a wife come and present and he is azoospermic and his brother has sperm and he donates, who's the owner of that new sperm? Usually legal contract. So it's the couple. So why all of a sudden does the female have ownership of treatment sperm, when, why wouldn't it just go just to him? Why is she now included in that situation? Why would you treat them differently just because it's coming from a donor material? That's fascinating. It's, I just gave a talk two days ago about this at the Southwestern Embryology Summit. And it's all about how you chart and how you treat your patients. And if you really go into it, you do different things for different relationships, which is really not the way that you need to do it. You just need to be very simple. Who are the owners and how did they present? Now, if you present and you say, I don't want, I am married, but I do not want my spouse to have ownership of it. You need to make that declaration at the beginning. And then it's very simple. We piecemeal you out. We chart you separately. We consent you separately. And you sign storage agreements and everything as an individual so that we chart and see you as an individual. Now you can self-own your eggs. But if you present as a couple, you sign consents as a couple, everything is done, co-mingled, co-insurance, co-done, you are all the owners of any resultant reproductive materials. It's just the way that we see it. So John, kind of on a different note, as your position of Ovation Director of Storage, what's kind of on the forefront for storage? What's kind of the hot new things that people are thinking about now? Because you've talked about how most labs were not built to store all these embryos. I'm assuming Ovation has some plans to expand and do some exciting things with storage. Yeah. So I think this topic, this ownership topic parlays into a transparency to our patients through their inventory. So I just, again, gave that talk and I questioned the audience. I said, what is inventory to you? What are the things for inventory? Let's say that it is not locating specimens inside of a lab. We're embryologists. We'll always be able to locate our specimens. But what is inventory? And one of those things that is inventory is patient engagement and patient transparency. How many embryos are in storage? What do you have? What's the quality? When were they frozen? Who's the listed owners? What can we do? And so what we're trying to do currently right now is to digitize 30 years of storage in many of our locations, get it into a format that we can then validate and then provide it to patients so they can see what they have and make clear decisions. We fully understand that uh, we are now aging into people now really needing to make decisions about their future use of their Mm -hmm. specimens. So we have an online portal where they can go ahead and sign and do all of their disposition work within the portal via DocuSign. Again, it's going to identify who the owners are from our digital format where we're pulling it from the cryo record and you can do it. So that 
idea that we can give you full transparency to what is in storage is what everybody is working towards. A new and improved way to basically give access to the patients on what is in storage. That's what we're currently working on. So John, how do you handle things where it's 30 years later and let's play the what if game for a minute. What if couple is separated, separated, divorced, whatever. You've got one person who's accessible and findable, but the other one isn't. And you know, if it's one thing if they've passed away and you have a death certificate. It's another thing if you have a divorce decree and they were foresightful enough to say, these embryos go to him, they go to her. But what do you do when you can't find somebody? So let me speak first to what we determine this is we call an advanced directive, right? In advance of this event, in the advance of divorce, let's say, this is what I want to have done with my specimens. I am here to also say that those are non-actionable for us. They are great to have. We require them. That's part of what we have. But patients are allowed to change their mind. A, a couple that freezes embryos together and makes a decision in the event of divorce, six years later, one person is allowed to say, you know what, I have new information about my relationship. I do not want what we originally had done. So we never go back to the original documents and say, well, this is what you originally done. Everything is done. We've now done an ownership change. We do require patients to supply us dated dispositions. So that would be a divorce decree or legal documentation that states specifically at a specific time, this is what ownership change has happened. I would tell you that more times than not, people change their mind. And both parties would obviously have to agree on that, right? Yeah. Again, that's how, the whole ownership thing, right? So we go back to who are the owners, and then those are the signatures that we need in order to get it done. And that's incredibly important too, because we've had donated material between people and the one couple ends up donating it back to the original person, but the person didn't know. She had, they had no idea that oh. I now have materials donated back to me. They filled out one document. And so again, that is where that transparency of ownership really needs to come in to get done. Now, to answer your next question, so now they're divorced and you can't get a hold of them. We do have what we determine with innovation. It's called a non-compliance policy. And fundamentally, it all rolls up to an external review board that will review it externally. So we pride ourselves. This is not us making decisions. It's not the company that's making a financial decision off of it. It's not the physicians making decisions off of it. It's an outside review board that is being done very similar to how anything is done for new testing, new cancer treatments, new work that's going to be done medically, you go to an IRB. So this review board will go ahead and look at cases and make recommendations off of those. Typically, those boards consist of people that work for the company and then scientific leaders in the industry, and then lay people, people that have no fertility background that we just put on to make sure that we get a good grouping of people to, to, to yeah make determinations off of it. So does this board help you figure out what to do in the case of what we would consider abandoned tissue? Exactly. So um, actually in, in Tennessee, Tennessee has very interesting laws, same thing with uh, Louisiana on reproductive material. And so we definitely have taken that whole abandonment idea and turned it into this non-compliance. And so what we're basically saying is, is that do we have communication with the listed owners? Yes or no. That's not going to determine some future state of them. We just need to 
first determine that. The next thing that we need to do is we need to do an internal review from our lab directors, as well as including the physician, just to make sure that there's nothing else that we're missing. There's no other nuance to this patient that we need to know. So Mm -hmm. first step, can we communicate with the patient? That's just billing, emailing, communicating. Second step is an internal review to make sure that it is. The third step is, is that we've now said, okay, our company is now the custodial owner of these specimens. We do not have communication with that owner. We have determined that the patient is non-compliant. We're going to go ahead and move them to our offsite facility where we can go and house them. And we're going to let our efforts continue for another at least two to three years where we're going to go ahead and do it. This is most likely after a year to two years, sometimes 10, 15 years of us trying to contact these patients. Then we let our collection efforts happen while they lay and they wait for those two years. After those two years come up, then it goes to the internal review board to go ahead and make determinations of continue efforts or do we need to go ahead and proceed with another type of a disposition? What if a patient says, okay, these are my embryos. I don't want to use them, but I really don't want to discard them. Can you accommodate that request as well? The great thing with Ovation is that we have fantastic clinic partners that do embryo donation and they all do it uniquely themselves, which is great because that's the relationship that the patient has, right? The patient has that relationship with that original clinic. So whenever you come in and you want to figure out future dispositions for it, so that's donation, discard, donation to research, I think will pop up and will give you the option if you want to go ahead and pursue something outside of the two that we have for you here, like donation to another couple, please reach out to your clinic. And so we would refer them back to the clinic to have the clinic give them what their options are. Donation is a little bit tricky in that many patients have parameters that they want out of the donation and they should have those parameters out of those donation. Unfortunately, the contracts that sometimes are written that then place me being a storage facility as a custodial owner to be a director of those dispositions, we don't take. Let me give you an example. And, and hang on one second, John. Yeah. So parameters, you mean like, I don't want this person that receives these embryos to live within 200 miles of this clinic, or I want them to have a certain background, or I don't want this to go to a certain type of couple, that kind of, those kind of parameters, nope. is that what you're No, nope. so those are easy. So those are, those typically go from programs that take full ownership of the embryo, and then they are the custodial owner for directing of what the patient intentions are. But when two patients meet together, maybe outside of us, or they're doing it together, and they've identified, basically, the one attorney will take a wish list of what the requirements are from the donor couple, and then the recipient agrees to those wish lists. One of those, many times is an embryo must be used for transfer within the next, let's say, six months or one year. I don't know how to support that need. Hmm. I I don't know. It's a logistical issue. It's a logistical issue. We, many of them, many of them state in five years, the ownership, any unused embryos resort back to the original donor. Again, I don't know how to support that. that. I don't have like a post-it that I can post and in five (laughs) years be able to, to look at this. I don't, staff changes, people that come in and go, we don't know how to support some of those parameters that come in. So I call those contingent donations. And unfortunately, we just don't have a way to do it. And we don't charge all these donations. We don't, we're not adding fees. We're not adding operational fees. We're not doing anything for this. I physically don't have the staff to support those needs. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're just, they're really, really, really hard to support for that. So what we've recommended, and actually in Las Vegas, there's a, an attorney's firm that has been fantastic about doing it. They truly got it. I said, 
I need a full and clear donation. But that does not mean that you can't agree between the two parties to what those requirements are outside of what I have. So what they've been doing is they've been doing a full and clear donation for us. So we know that they're clear. But now the two parties make a contractual agreement together for what those contingencies are. And it is up to the recipient to make good and they are legally bound on those contingencies, not me. So it sounds like a lot of these issues are really things that are resolved at the end of the day with the lawyers because you are going to continue providing that tissue with whatever it needs to remain viable. The tanks, the alarm systems, the staff, the maintenance that's required. But when it comes to actually using this tissue, it sounds like really the biggest issue is, do you guys have good lawyers who can help you sort out who gets what and how they can use it. Yep. So that's why that inventory question comes back to ownership. Who is the owner of it? And how do you follow that trail of ownership? And there's lots of attorneys firms out there. And there's lots of clinics that have always allowed these contingent donations. But there's been a big change in this industry to really look at what we can and can't do because those requirements or those contingencies put a storage facility like mine, we don't know how to support them. And then we get caught with no owner to specify at the end because these donations, sometimes they're happening at other clinics and they come in, we don't even know who the original donor is. And the contract now says it resorts back to the donor. I don't have her address. I don't have her phone number. I don't have any information off of her. We haven't billed her in the last eight years. How do I find who she is? Really, really yeah. tricky work. I think it does make sense about what you're doing is essentially creating well-defined boundaries of what as a storage facility you can and cannot do. It doesn't mean that people outside of that arrangement can't come up with something, but people need to kind of understand there are limits to what you can do, but that doesn't mean they can't do something in excess of that. Exactly. Is that fair? The only thing I would say to anybody that's ever going to go down this path, work with your clinic if they have requirements first so that you don't pay uh, an attorney to review, don't pay an attorney to write a contract, to then have that contract not be accepted and have to pay them again for another review and another contract. That's a good point. Yeah. So all of our patients get a complete document of ownership provisions. So it's one of our documents that they have when they initiate this that we give out. And many attorneys use that as a fundamental rubric for the what they want to do in order to craft them. So we have an entire ownership provision, what to do in any of these events, what we require and what we don't require. And that's really been helping our patients with it. So I encourage you to contact your clinic at the time of donation, which is outside of your clinic donation. Because your clinic donation is clean. We've been working with our clinics. They know how to go ahead and facilitate those. But your directed donation or donation to another program, call up your practice, call up your laboratory, see if they have any documents to help guide you so you only have to pay your attorneys once. Thank you so much, John. That is super helpful, just the discussion in general for our our patients and our listeners to know how to approach this. So thank you so much for going through all of that with us. And we are appreciative. Of course. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So leave us a like, follow us and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously, as you know, for our Ask the Doc segment. So even leave us some episode ideas. We'd love to hear that too. Don't hold back and we'll see you soon. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.